It's March 31st, 2019, and this is episode 393 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. And for new customers, use coupon code LTB half off. That's one word, LTB half off, to save 50% on your first purchase. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. And on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm joined by Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Thanks to all the hosts and to you listeners for sitting in on today's session. So on today's episode, we're going to be taking more questions from listeners, each of whom is going to then qualify to win our last Bitcoin clock from Matthew Zipkin. We gave away the first one about three weeks ago to uh, listener Tony, and supposedly he's received it by now, although I, I suppose I should check in and see how all that's going. Today's first question comes to us from Jason. And uh, this is one that I didn't think was that controversial, but in our kind of pre-discussion, turns out maybe it is a little bit controversial. So the question is, the original version of Bitcoin allowed sending to IP addresses and the user had to be online in order to receive. My understanding is that is how Satoshi originally designed it. What did the transaction look like in that case? How did one prove ownership of coins if they were received to the IP address? And just generally, how does it work? This was actually a little bit before my time. I never really used this feature, despite starting to use Bitcoin in 2012, 2011, something like that. Um, and I went looking for kind of how this whole system works. From Quora, so pay to IP transactions were removed from Bitcoin in version 0.8.0. Such transactions worked by essentially contacting the IP address that you were sending to, seeing if it was running Bitcoin, and if it was, receiving a public key back from the Bitcoin node, which the uh, sender would then pay to. However, this wasn't very secure. There was no way to prove that the response was coming from the IP address you tried to contact. It was trivial for a man-in-the-middle attack to simply hijack your request and reply with their own Bitcoin public key, effectively stealing the payment. You know, when, when I was looking at this before, when I was thinking about the send to IP feature before, I was actually thinking about it as if it was I'm going to send to someone's IP address, not really thinking about how it's being coordinated in the background. But really what it sounds like is this was more of a coordination mechanism than anything else, where if I know, you know, Andreas's IP address, I can send him a request. I don't need to know his Bitcoin address. I just need to know his IP address. And then it's going to send me back an address. But really, like the only thing it's simplifying there is it makes it so that if I know his IP address and it's easier to contact him via his IP address, versus just sending him an email or, you know, talking to him or something like that and getting an address that way. Like, there's actually not much of a difference between these things, right? Well, I mean, other than it makes it enormously easy for in-the-middle attack and uh, it's totally insecure and IP addresses are not identifiers are worth anything and it's a privacy nightmare and it's an asinine idea and it was removed very early on because everybody realized it was an asinine idea. You mean that? I do mean that. You know, again, assume that this just worked as as intended. Like the only thing it's actually doing differently compared to how transactions work today is it's a question of how do you get the public key? It's a lookup. Yeah, exactly. It's a lookup. Right. It's a registry. Well, let's look at what technologies it uses for a lookup. So in practice, right, it's much more likely that you wouldn't be using an IP address, but you would in fact be using a DNS name. So let's say that you are using a DNS name and let's say the DNS name I advertise is btc.aantonop.com. 
So what that means is that at this point, there are at least three different mechanisms where you can introduce a man-in-the-middle attack. One, I can have my DNS servers compromised, in which case btc.aantonop.com points to a different IP address where a different host is waiting to give a different public key. So that's attack vector number one. Now that can happen either at my end on my computer, it can happen on the DNS servers, or it can happen through DNS injection on the sender, meaning that the sender connects to some Wi-Fi that forwards their DNS requests and gives them a fake IP address for that domain, which is very common, very easy to do, easy attack. So that's attack factor number one. Attack factor number two, of course, is compromising the IP address, man-in-the-middle attack at the IP layer. A bit harder to do, not impossible. Not impossible at all. It can be done at either end of the connection. You can introduce essentially a routing compromise on on the sender, or you can kick the real host off the network by spoofing, say, its MAC address, and then once it's off the network, subsume its IP address and then respond on its behalf. And then finally, even if you do manage to get the correct IP address, now you need to contact the host that's on that IP address, the Bitcoin port, which, of course, is a privacy nightmare. But then if you do contact it, it gives you a public key back. You have no way of knowing if that public key actually belongs to Andreas. You just have an IP address. So if my machine or the machine that I have that IP address for is compromised, then any process on that machine can return a different public key or address. There's no process for signing it or showing that it's actually owned by me. There's no way to attach it to the IP address there's really no way to authenticate. So it has all of the problems of compromised Bitcoin addresses, only three more layers of problem. It's sort of like how the um, ICOs that happened last year, a few of them had one of the founder's email addresses compromised. And just by sending out an email from one of the founder's email addresses saying, here's the ICO address, we're able to scam you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's happened multiple times. The man in the middle vector for uh, uh, signaling this is who I am online is such a such a horrible, trivial to attack space. I know whenever I do a Bitcoin transaction, that's more than pocket change. I, I always confirm the last four or five digits by calling them. And then if it's a non-trivial amount, I do a, a video phone call specifically because like, I don't even trust email or text or signal or any method of uh, transmitting a public key without some sort of uh, human authentication because of how easy it is to mess with that sort of stuff. Yep. So I have kind of a naive question here. You know, one of the things about IP transactions when this was a thing is that you had to be online in order to send it. And you don't necessarily have to know the address of the person to do it. And it feels like sort of intuitively that there are similarities, at least in kind of uh, how you would approach this relative to the lightning conversation we've been having recently. Are there any similarities between this or is this just something I'm seeing that isn't there? It does require coordination. Now, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a Bitcoin node online. You could have a minimal service that all it does is return a public key to you, right? Mm-hmm. You could implement just that part of the protocol and basically have a responder. Honestly. there are better ways of implementing this to reduce the number of vulnerabilities. One of the better ways of implementing this is making this a DNS record. So you could do a, you know, a TXT DNS record for your domain that says that aantonop.com 
has a TXT record that says Bitcoin equals a Bitcoin address. You could put a, a BIP21 URI in there. You don't have to have a node online. You don't have to have the Bitcoin functionality online. All you need to do is have something online that can respond. And it's basically a key value lookup. It's a registry. And there, there are better ways of doing registries than DNS. You know, stepping back from the kind of IP approach in general, let's just talk about registries for a second. That's always been kind of something where, on the one hand, there's a real use case for it in that it would make it easier to find who you're going to send you know, funds to. But on the other hand, it seems to detract pretty seriously from privacy to have something like that. I mean, is that something that should be in Bitcoin or on top of Bitcoin? Or is it something that just, you know, we shouldn't even really think about as a part of Bitcoin and should just continue to use Bitcoin as we as we do? Well, every now and then someone uh, joins the Bitcoin industry or ecosystem or the crypto ecosystem and says, hey, wouldn't it be great if you could just use your name? <laughs> right. And then they invent, they reinvent a centralized database that's their company that they then ICO that's going to manage that registry in a centralized fashion. And I can't even remember how many companies have done this already. It's been a lot. It's been a lot, right? And, and it's the same basic idea. You know, what we need in order to fully explore the possibilities of the decentralized network is a centralized identity layer on top of it that we control. <laughs> Genius. How could anyone not have thought of this before? Oh, actually, everybody did and rejected it because it's asinine. So the correct way of doing this, honestly, in my opinion, is the way Ethereum does it with ENS or the way Namecoin did it before that. Namecoin didn't really scale or succeed. The uh, Ethereum name service with a smart contract is, is doing it better. That involves a completely decentralized registry that operates as a smart contract where you can auction names and reserve them by putting down a stake. With uh, Bitcoin, there's no native mechanism to do it, to do it in a decentralized fashion. But again, the, the biggest problem even with a decentralized thing, is how do you validate the identity before the record is, is created, right? Right. It seems like you need that registry up front in order to validate against. Well, yes, exactly. And then the, the secondary problem is almost immediately you're going to have squatting problems, which you also have on ENS and, and other decentralized registries. Here's the thing. From my experience, I now have imposters on every social media platform, on every identity platform, on every email platform who have some variation of, the, of my name, right, with one character offset. And, you know, single letter substitutions of my name run into the tens of thousands variations. So there's, it's impossible to stop. Now, let's say you did a, a DNS-based registry or even a decentralized registry. Okay, maybe I'm lucky enough and I get a Antonop mm -hmm. as a name. Great. So A Antonopoulos, Antonop, Antonoop, <laughs> and the other 20,000 single letter substitutions of my name immediately pop up and people start squatting them. And, and then what, right? Simply having a name registry doesn't solve the other problem, which is reputation and identity verification and squatting. These are not easy problems to solve. For every complex problem, there is an obvious and simple solution, and that solution is wrong. And in the case of registries and identity, we're seeing a hundred companies try the simple and obvious solution, which is obviously wrong, of trying to set up a centralized mechanism.
But I think the IP sending is simply another iteration of that. It's way too vulnerable. It doesn't solve a real problem that people have. And it opens the door for a lot of types of attacks. All right, so our next question comes to us from David. David asks a kind of basic question, but one that's actually harder to answer than you might think. What's the maximum number of transactions in one Bitcoin block currently? And then he also you know, would love to know about uh, with other types of advancements, some of which we would understand and some of which we necessarily wouldn't. So the maximum we've seen in practice, and this is not the absolute maximum, is about two and a half thousand transactions per block or about 370,000 transactions. That's what we're seeing on the network at the moment, but it doesn't represent the maximum because not all transactions are the same. So this question really depends on what type of transaction is it? What addressing scheme does it use? What control scheme does it use? What's the script that unlocks it? If you take the simplest case, you have a transaction that has one input and one output. Those are pretty rare because usually you need change, so it's usually one input, two outputs. And then it depends on whether the input was a SegWit address, so you can have a segregated witness signature, and what type of outputs you have and how compact they are. So let's say best case scenario is from a SegWit address to a native SegWit address. So that would be a, let's say, P2WPKH input to a P2WPKH, which is a pay to witness public key hash format, a native SegWit address. That would be the smallest transaction you can do. Size of that transaction, I think, is about 160, 180 bytes or something like that. Off the top of my head, I'm probably wrong about that, but it's somewhere there. With that, you could probably fit closer to 4,000 transactions in a block. I'm not sure, I haven't done the math at the moment, but that requires that everybody's transitioned to SegWit, everybody's sending the simplest transactions possible, and they're making exact payments with no change. So it's a theoretical maximum that isn't really practically reachable. Well, you know, one question I had when thinking about this is, should we really be thinking about these as transactions? And does transactions, is that really an accurate metric to measure throughput given the way that we're looking at scaling? Should we be thinking about these things instead as maybe outputs or as recipients? Is transactions a, a good metric to continue to use to really determine this? I don't think any of the metrics really on their own are perfect, meaning that there's a lot of things that go into this. For example, a single transaction may have multiple participants. It may create or destroy a lot of UTXO. It may be some kind of aggregating payments. It may be a channel opening and closing on Lightning, which has other scaling implications. And you know, people use techniques like batching to consolidate multiple transactions into one in order to save on fees. So a single transaction may represent the withdrawals from an exchange of 150 different people. And what we've seen over time is that the value of a transaction has actually gone up. So we now have about the same number of transactions we had, let's say, two years ago, but they're bigger in value. And that can be explained by batching. It can be explained by people avoiding doing small value transactions because the, the percentage of fees feels too high and various other functions like that. But it's really difficult to measure throughput in terms of human activity that's relevant here. As time goes on, 
you know, as Lightning rolls out and we have more, potentially more different layer two solutions or maybe just multiple layers of Lightning. And I wonder if we'll ever really calculate the on-chain, off-chain combined, you know, throughput, or if we're always going to be thinking about this, like, here's the on-chain number. Okay, here's the off-chain number that derives off of that. Well, we can calculate the off-chain number. And I think that's really important to realize. And off-chain is not something that happens in the future. Off-chain is something that is happening today. It is just SQL-based off-chain instead of Lightning-based off-chain. But again, what percentage of transactions happen in exchanges between exchange customers that never hit the, the chain? We don't know, but it's likely that it's the majority of transactions. Some people have quoted as high as 80% of transactions are happening between exchange customers without ever hitting the chain on the SQL database of the exchange, right? That's off-chain, and we have no idea how big it is because it's invisible to the rest of the world. Lightning has the same characteristic. Obviously, it's trustless, unlike SQL, but the bigger the network gets, the less visibility we have and the less we know how many transactions are happening on it. If Lightning is successful, the answer is we have no idea. So our next question comes to us from listener Hamish. He asks, why are Bitcoin exchanges slow to take advantage of the payment platform opportunity between their clients, either through their off-chain Bitcoin balances or Lightning or both? So let me just rephrase this, what I think he is asking. Right now, exchanges allow for the trading to happen where I can go on a market and I can say, I want to buy some Litecoin and somebody else can say, I want to sell some Litecoin. And we both make that trade. The platform enables that. But if I just wanted to send some Litecoin to that person instead of using this trade interface, then I couldn't do that under really most circumstances. I think there are some exchange platforms out there, now that I think about it, though, that do offer that sort of like off-chain balance transfer capability. But it's definitely not a standard feature across the board. It's a lot harder to deal with cross-border transactions of that form between exchanges, and it creates a lot more opportunities. Keep in mind that part of the problem is that if an exchange has a bilateral agreement with another exchange where they're doing off-chain transfers between their clients, that means that each exchange is exposed to the liability and risk of the other exchange's quality of their KYC AML. And that's enough to nix that situation. Yeah, it's one of those things where from a like a marketplace standpoint, there definitely is an opportunity there in that these are large platforms that already enable this type of transfer, that already have these type of security mechanisms in place. But it's really not about whether it's possible or a good business move. It's about what are the licensing requirements surrounding that. And just the reality is, is that when it comes to money, the licensing requirements a lot of times are very, very difficult such that it makes it not worth to go this route. As I said, you know, we have seen some exchanges do it, but it's mostly been kind of the sketchier ones. I can't even remember any of the ones that actually did it. Maybe Cripsy? It's not commonly done. And that's pretty much it, is that, you know, while there might be a business case for it, from a business compliance stance, it complicates things a lot more than they already are. And things are already very complicated for Bitcoin exchanges, as we discussed on the last episode. Yeah, here's the the rule of thumb. As soon as you become a regulated entity in this industry, you can kiss goodbye the idea of open, neutral, borderless, censorship-resistant, decentralized currency. Because it's no longer open, it's no longer borderless, it's no longer neutral, it's no longer decentralized, and it's no longer censorship-resistant because all of the regulations force you to abandon those positions. Yeah, so basically you become a bank. No, no, no. Banks are insured. You don't even get that. <laughs> oh, so minor difference. Yes, a shitty bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So we talked about the off-chain Bitcoin balances. They already do that. Why, you know, why don't they connect these dots? That's why. You know, with Lightning coming up, will that balance change? Do we think that we're more likely to see exchanges take this sort of route by integrating Lightning to kind of take away that compliance re- responsibility for them? Or is this is it kind of a moot point? I have said in the past, and I still strongly believe this, that the majority of exchanges will not be able to implement Lightning because it will expose them to regulatory pressure on KYC AML that they cannot fulfill. Lightning is a network that allows other people to route through your balance. Even if you set it up to not do that, it still is possible to route through another node. And that means that they can't fulfill the KYC requirements. And the KYC requirements specifically that they can't fulfill is knowing the identity in a, in a legal sense of the person who is enabling and who they are transferring to. That's really the issue here. Of the actual sender and recipient rather than the proximate sender and recipient. So you, you will be able to see that customer Charlie is sending to customer David on Coinbase. The problem is that with Lightning, you don't know if Charlie is actually the sender or Charlie is simply an intermediate node on a second layer network that is sending on behalf of someone else. To regulated entities, Lightning may even just look like a Tumblr or maybe regulated as participation in a Tumblr. It is. Yeah, exactly. And the more Lightning gets developed, the harder it becomes. The simple payment channel concept is maybe achievable. But once you get to fully routed payment channels with onion routing and all of the privacy protections that Lightning has built in, it's it's not something that a regulated entity can touch, really. They can do the very, very basic things, which is allow withdrawals and deposits from their customers. Maybe. Hey listeners, do you wear shirts or know someone who does? Well, I'm pleased to announce you're in luck. Starting today, the Let's Talk Bitcoin show is offering excruciatingly comfortable, 100% combed cotton Let's Talk Bitcoin episode t-shirts, each featuring one of our favorite quotes from the latest episodes. Your cost per t-shirt is $23.99 with free shipping in the US or Canada, and a couple of dollars more to ship almost anywhere else internationally. The quote from episode 392 is, that's not a blockchain, it's a series of poor engineering decisions. And the shirt from this episode reads open, neutral, decentralized, and borderless. All of this can be found at our new website, ltbshow.com. That's ltbshow.com where you can pick up your LTB shirt today. So why shirts and why now? Let's Talk Bitcoin has always been a passion project, but after five years, we're looking for ways to become fiscally sustainable without asking listeners to pay for something they already get, without compromising our sponsor standards, and without adding more than two minutes of sponsor messages to each show. This t-shirt initiative is one of several we have coming up, and we really appreciate you taking a look and your thoughts. Whether this appeals to you or not, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com and tell me what you think. Or head over to ltbshow.com and buy a shirt. Thanks for listening. So our next question is from Simon. In a December episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Andreas mentioned that paper wallets as a method of deep cold storage are basically obsolete at this point, and that BIP39 mnemonic phrases should be used instead. Can't say that word mnemonic. Doesn't it create a single point of failure, though? With a paper wallet, you could easily split your funds among multiple keys in physical locations, while there are no tools to shard pneumatic phrases to avoid a single point of compromise, while the naive approach of breaking a pneumatic phrase into pieces is not secure. 
So the question here basically is, I hear that paper wallets aren't the thing to use and are obsolete at this point, but really? (laughs) Yeah, so this comes up every time I make this statement. And basically, this is the statement. Based on more than 30 years of information security experience, I can tell you without a doubt that paper wallets are not secure enough and are obsolete and the BIP39 mnemonics are better in every possible conceivable way for every possible risk model that you have with very few exceptions. And the answer to that statement is, but paper wallets. (laughs) Well, let's try to understand why people like them, right? Because, for example, if you were kind of creating something that's like an HD wallet by just creating a ton of little paper wallets with like a small balance in each one. You can kind of take one out of cold storage and portion it out and people maybe feel like they have a reasonable enough system to protect the paper wallets from fire, water damage, like physical stuff in the real world that could happen to them. Everything you can do with a paper wallet, you can do with a BIP39 mnemonic better, in every way better. And that's the simple answer. Now, I say this as someone who actually sold paper wallets in 2013 as part of a business I had at the, at the time called Safe Paper Wallet. I was a big fan of paper wallets, and I used them at the time. That was before we had the better technology, which is BIP39 mnemonics. So th- there's a lot of problems with paper wallets, including how do you import them? Where do you import them? How does the wallet handle change? which often causes loss of value. The fact that they're not Mm. human readable, the fact that they they rely on QR codes with a bit of damage can become unreadable, whereas mnemonics are much easier to read even if they're heavily damaged. The fact that they can only store one crypto and only one key, all of these are problems. But the scenario you just described, Stephanie, you could do that simply by having a number of different BIP39 mnemonics. You could consider the paper backup of a BIP39 mnemonic as a human-readable paper wallet and do everything you just proposed to do with a paper wallet only better with standards for how it gets imported so you don't lose the change and with all of the security that you had before, including what the question from Simon was about splitting funds among multiple keys. Well, you can split funds among multiple seeds. There is no reason why you couldn't do that. So for every reason you might want to use a paper wallet, you can use a paper backup of a BIP39 mnemonic in exactly the same way, and it's superior in every way. Yeah, and you can have a password-encrypted HD wallet, basically, and you store the password and the seed phrase in different places, right? That's correct. And by the way, there are standards for splitting mnemonic. They're not broadly implemented, but there's a standard called SLIP39 by Satoshi Labs, the creators of the Trezor, that allows you to create a Shamir secret sharing scheme split, uh, M of N split of your mnemonic, where each one of the shares is also, also looks like a mnemonic. So it's plain words that you can back up. And then if you collect M of N of those splits, you can reconstruct your mnemonic. For most people, though, the far greater risk they're facing is loss due to incorrect implementation, technical error, natural disaster, or simply damaging the backup, right? And people are very worried that someone's going to find their mnemonic and steal their money. And what they should be worried about is that they're going to lose their mnemonic, which happens 
a thousand times more often. So it's better to actually have a simple mnemonic stored in multiple places than to try all of these elaborate schemes that people come up with to break a mnemonic into pieces or whatever. And even the passphrase, whether it's a BIP38 encrypted paper wallet or a mnemonic with passphrase, it has problems. And the problems are, okay, so you, you added a passphrase. How do you back up the passphrase? And where do you back up the passphrase? And, and yes, you can, you can create essentially a second factor. So you have your mnemonic backed up in one place and the password in another. But that's now a two of two scheme, meaning that you need both of those items to recover your money. And if you lose either one, you're toast. So you really need to think about resilience, continuity, survivability, much more than you need to think about evil agents to the black helicopter government coming into your house and looking for the 24 words. Maybe some people are concerned about the evil agents from the black <laughs> helicopters, but I think other people are concerned maybe about their family members or their roommates or something like that, or their ex-partner who knew about their scheme. But that's why you mm -hmm. rotate it every once in a while, right? And whenever there's a change in your relationships, you keep those mnemonics fresh and you keep the security scheme up to date with a little check-in once every quarter or once every six months or something like that. That's great advice. And in fact, you, you do have to update and refresh your plan every now and then because, you know, your cousin who was a lovely person is now a lovely person with a heroin addiction. And, you know, they may still be a lovely person, but they're, they're after your crypto because they want to buy some smack. Families change, right? So in terms of continuity, you have to adapt your plan to new threats that arise around you. Or you don't have a, a stable living situation, or you don't have the ability to physically secure backups in a way that they won't get thrown out by other people in your family accidentally or things like that. There's all kinds of risk scenarios. Very few of them are about someone stealing and certainly not about being able to brute force or uh, decrypt or whatever your keys. In 99% of, of scenarios, I think for most users, a simple BIP39 backup, either on paper or stamped on metal or in a format or laminated so it doesn't get affected by moisture in a fireproof safe, will cover most of your bases. If you're really concerned about physical theft and you can't physically secure the backup, then you should consider a passphrase and then you need to consider backing up more than one copy of the mnemonic plus more than one copy of the passphrase in different places and have a, a continuity plan so if something happens to you, your family can recover these things by coming together. But again, all of that is based on BIP39 mnemonics, which is the modern standard for doing this. It's the most secure standard. It's human readable. It's importable according to standard ways. It provides all of the security that you'd want and is far, far superior to paper wallets. Paper wallets are obsolete. In before, but what about paper wallets? <laughs> <laughs> I've been having this running battle for the last two years, trying to persuade people that paper wallets are obsolete, that the risk of loss is far greater. They will lose their money if they don't know what they're doing, and most people don't know what they're doing. I mean, that I think is the irony of all of this. Maybe it's not ironic, but it's the, it's the part that makes this a somewhat difficult question for me is I literally know people who have lost funds in all of the ways we've been talking about, right? At least once and not like insubstantial amounts of funds and not through being completely incompetent, <laughs> just because this stuff is hard to continue to execute on, you know, year after year after year. I think something worth emphasizing is that 
Regardless of how you're storing your cryptocurrency, the important thing to remember about cryptocurrency is that as with Coinbase, you are effectively a bank. And that has advantages in that you don't have to trust other banks, but it has disadvantages in that it's actually some decent work to make sure that there are no adverse scenarios showing up (laughs) while you're trying to fill that role. I've been receiving hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails over the past five years from people who have lost crypto in a variety of ways. I can't even remember a single time that someone has had crypto stolen because someone else got to them mnemonic. Not a single one. But in terms of people who have lost money because of misapplying paper wallets, because of losing backups, because having backups destroyed through water damage or people throwing them away, not knowing what they are or various things like that, people lose crypto all the time. People have crypto stolen very rarely. Exchanges have crypto stolen because they're a single point of failure with a big honeypot reward. But individuals very rarely have crypto stolen unless it's online on an insecure Windows machine and someone Trojans it. That's the scenario. And the idea that people are going around and finding mnemonics and stealing crypto is a myth. I have never heard of it happening. And maybe it has. The only time I heard of it happening was when someone used a really simple brain wallet phrase. Oh, brain wallet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brain wallets are insecure. That's not really a paper wallet, though. Although... It's also an example of trying to be cute about doing your own crypto, right? And this is the fundamental Mm -hmm. problem is people try to do risk analysis, which usually doesn't strike the right balance between the risk of theft and the risk of loss. That balance between security and resilience is really, really difficult to get right. Standards like BIC39 have that balance right for the risk model of the average user who's storing a reasonable amount of money but not an entire fortune and doesn't really know what they're doing and wants something that's easy to use and survivable for their errors. That balance is already there. If you follow the standard and don't try to do anything cute, you can actually achieve very high levels of security and resilience. It's when people start trying to do things like oh, let me take my mnemonic and circle each word in a book uh, every third page and then cut it in six parts and distribute the six parts or encrypt it and put it on Dropbox with AS250. Stop, stop. Just follow the standard. The most innovation you should do is stamp it on metal instead of writing it on paper so that it's really fireproof. That's about it. And then just follow the standard. And if you do, you won't lose your money. It's extremely resilient. And uh, safety deposit boxes at banks are your friend. Yeah. I mean, storing your crypto in banks is actually not a bad idea. I use safe deposit box. Not on the balance sheet of the bank, physically in the bank. Physically in the bank. They do the guards, dogs, bars, and alarms thing quite well. Physical security is your friend. It's much better than digital security. It's achievable and intuitive for most people because we've been doing it for millennia, right? So safe deposit boxes are a great deal, but you have to pay money to secure one. Not everybody has access to that. This reminds me of the conversation that we were having uh, last week about uh, JPM coin and the different ways of doing stable coins. And basically, there is no way to do a stable coin, right? It's just a question of what you think is the biggest risk and what you're most concerned about uh, determining what type of stable coin 
is sort of the best fit for your risk model. I see the same sort of thing going on here. Yeah, everything is about identifying the risk model and doing a realistic analysis of what threats you're facing and then balancing between the various threats. And the truth is that for most people, the threat or the risk of loss is much greater than the risk of theft and the risk of technical error because of user error, right, is much higher than the risk of, say, a brute force attack or a sophisticated adversary. And so people end up applying the wrong end of the scale, and then they lose their crypto. And it happens all the time. Paper wallets, they're misleadingly simple in that you look at them and you think, this is something I can do. All I need is a printer, and I just download this software from the internet, and I can print out my paper wallets, and it works. The difficulty isn't in creating them in the first place. The difficulty is in how you store them for the long term and how you import them when you want to spend them. And that's usually where it falls apart. And that's what's been solved by BIP39, which is just as easy to generate with a variety of devices and software, only it actually has a standard for how you import it that doesn't lose money, unlike change addresses in paper wallets. And because it's human readable, it's much more survivable with minor damage. Like if you get a paper wallet wet and the QR code just gets a tiny bit modified, you eventually you surpass the error correction ability of the QR code and then it's gone. Like it's impossible to recover. But in terms of an English word, it takes a lot of damage for an English word to not be readable by a human pattern recognition system. The handwriting has a lot of features that are highly redundant. So even you can read smudged handwriting, you can read partial handwriting. It takes a lot of damage to modify that. The one qualifier to that advice is that there are many projects out there that aren't Bitcoin, that are their own blockchain, that have yet to implement a uh, mnemonic uh, system in it. And, and there, paper wallets still do make sense, but it's just because their technology is not up with the times, not because it's not a better solution. Yeah, but there are not that many, though. Jonathan, I mean, I, I can probably count maybe two or three projects that are both interesting and do not support a BIP39 coin type. Well, interesting versus people having financial exposure to it, I think are two different <laughs> uh, parameter sets to evaluate by. Yeah. So one thing we haven't mentioned here and that I just kind of want to end this with is that it seems like actually the real solution or at least one of the better solutions that's available to individuals is our hardware wallets. And we haven't talked about that here, but that really seems like it's the true evolution of this where you take that BIP39 uh, mnemonic phrase and then you put it into a device that actually helps you interface with it on a daily basis so that you cannot just use it as cold storage, but you can use it as sort of your daily spending too. Yeah, hardware wallets are by far the most secure solution that the average user can use. And that's because they remove a lot of the avenues for human error that are the biggest risk that people face. The biggest risk that people face is that their technical assumptions will be greater than their technical competence. And in the process of trying to do something, they'll make a mistake. And I'm, I'm not downing people for their lack of technical expertise. That applies to everyone. Everyone has a limit to their technical competence. And if they try to exceed that limit unknowingly, they will fail. It's different for different people. Well, it's also the, the Kevin Mitnick problem, which is, you know, your intelligence can be a 9 out of 10 and the FBI's intelligence could be a 3 out of 10, but their time and patience is infinite and you only have to hit a 3 once before they catch you. The problem with all this stuff is, 
you can be batting a thousand for a year straight and then screw up once and now all your funds are unrecoverable. It, it's that you have to maintain a level of sophistication perfectly at all times and can never falter from it. That makes it a challenge that even the most sophisticated people can be um, not enough to handle. And I, I fall into this bucket myself a couple of times. And it's because getting it right a hundred times makes you believe you'll get it right the hundred and first time. And human error is human error. And you're always going to screw up once. And with this type of stuff, that one time is all it takes to lose all your money. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin was brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. Oh, and use coupon code LTB half off if it's your first time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode featured Andreas Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Dave, Crystal, and Adam. Intro and transition music were provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.